you start with your raw material and you either forge it, which is hammer, anvil, repeating, fire, uh, or you stock remove, and you get your basic shape from there, your, your silhouette. Um, then you're going to bevel, uh, cut in your bevels, whether you're forging those bevels or you're grinding those bevels, which is basically just the, the edge geometry, the initial edge geometry of that blade. Hello, I'm Jim Fox, and welcome to the Lumen Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live. This episode of the Lumen Innovation Podcast is brought to you in part by the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company. 20 different flavors of pecans to choose from. Whether you want in-shell, cracked, chocolate, or candied pecans, the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company has you covered. Don't forget about their pecan pies and fudge as well. If you live anywhere in Central Texas, stop by their shop at 2626 Highway 71 West in Cedar Creek. If you live anywhere else, keep in mind that they mail pecans all over the country. Give them a call at 1-800-518-3870 or go to birdall.com. That's B-E-R-D-O-L-L.com. All of the pecan products are grown, prepared, and cooked right there in Cedar Creek by the Birdall Pecan Candy and Gift Company. Welcome to the Lumen Innovation Podcast. I'm Jim Fox. The guest today is Philip Shirai. Philip is the Season 6, Episode 17 champion on History Channel's Forged in Fire and a professional bladesmith from Spring, Texas. He is also the proprietor of Be Ready Bladeworks. Welcome to the show, Philip. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, big question. What is bladesmithing? Bladesmithing. Uh, it's the, the basic idea of taking raw metal materials, getting them really, really hot, and beating them really, really hard with hammers to a particular shape that you're wanting to go for. Uh, and at the end of the process, you're, you're left with a functional tool, um, whether it's a, a sword, a, a, a little pocket knife, or bushcrafting knife, or some kind of knife that you want to use in the kitchen. You're, you're left with a functional tool at the end of it. So at first glance, this might look like blacksmithing, but you're kind of a subset of blacksmithing, right? It, you're, blacksmithing incorporates a lot of the exact same tools and techniques. So technically, it is blacksmithing. Um, you get some nuances where you use different machinery and different techniques to produce blades because there are two different types of, of bladesmithing. One is you know your traditional coal or propane forge, uh, an anvil, hammering it out, or using a very sophisticated belt grinder and doing a process that's called stock removal. And basically you're just taking the piece of metal and putting a stencil on it and then cutting out that shape, um, not using the anvil, not using the forge. It's, it's all cold metal. And isn't that typically done with the harder metal, stainless steel and such? Um, yes, I mean, you're not supposed to forge stainless steels. There, there are some that you can. Um, Maybe getting a little too technical, but some of the stainless steels, when you forge them, um, create um, fractures deep within the metal. And, and when you go to do your quench, um, it, it can exacerbate those those cracks. So you're left with you know basically a useless piece of steel. So yeah, a lot of your stainlesses, you do want to do the stock removal method. 
Cool. You mentioned quench. We're going to dig into that yeah. later. That's definitely good. There's tons of unique uh, terms with this field that uh, most of us laymen don't don't really know. Yeah. How did you get started in this? That's a cool story. So my background's audio and video engineering. Um, <clears throat> and then I had I let me back up. I'm I'm an entrepreneur at spirit. Right. I, I've I've had uh, five failed businesses <laughs> and working on number six, I guess. <laughs> um, I was watching a YouTube video one day, uh, and it was this, I, I'm assuming, you know, 15 to 17-year-old kid using very basic, crude tools in his, uh, I'm going to assume his father's garage, um, and, and he made a, a beautiful knife. And I was just struck with, one, how easy it looked for him, and then two, I pretty much had all those same tools in my garage. So I just got the idea, hey, let's, let's go try. Let's go have fun. I'm bored. Let's do it. Um, and about a week later, I, you know, I finished my first knife. And, you know, it, I've still got it. Um, I'll show a few people every now and then. But, it's, you know, it's just one of those things that you keep for your own. You don't really want to brag about it. But, but those kind of deals, I've, dad, I did various ventures like that too. But those kind of deals, you, you, you get five or ten years into a hobby and you look back at the first one of those you make and you think, man, that's kind of crappy. But I wouldn't be where I am today without that crappy one. Absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah. There's, there's a saying that I love. Um, you fail your way to success. Yeah. Always, always yeah. fail your way to success. So after making that knife, uh, just, you know, I, I, I deeply enjoyed the process. Um, time stood still for me while I was working. Um, I'd, I'd spend, you know, eight hours. Um, and at that time, you know, I'd, I'd be up until three, four o'clock in the morning. Wife comes out because she's getting ready to go to work. What are you doing? Huh? What time is it? Yeah, huh? you've totally lost track of time. Then yeah. I started doing research on what people were charging for these things and what kind of money you could make, knowing what the overhead was in the raw materials. And it's, you know, it, with any craft, your materials are always going to be generally, you know, inexpensive. It's your time that costs the money. Absolutely. Um, but finding out what these, what people were, you know, spending and selling these things for, I thought, man, let's, at very least, let's just try this for a hobby. Who doesn't want extra cash, right? So I did. I got into it and... It just, it is snowballed. Man, it is snowballed. I have, I have only been doing this craft for about three years and only serious about doing. That first year, I think I only made uh, six, to, six to eight knives. And uh, February 2017 is when I really started to get in it and crank out some product. So I, I you know, that's, you know, almost... Two and a half years now, and that's your it's your full time gig now, right? That is, this, this it is, is my full time gig. This is what you do, yeah. Other than take care of my daughter, but oh, there you go. <laughs> that's the full time. So, gig. so, do you in in the shop here? Where, let's set the scene. Where, where are we right now? Yeah, so we're at we're at my house. Uh, I have slowly started to take over the entire house. We're we're in the garage right now, which is you know the heart, the main center, um, and it's it's a twenty two by twenty two garage. It's you know it's not massive by any means. Uh, but it's it's big enough to hold uh, more than I think it should hold. <laughs> it is pretty packed. But it is pretty packed. But looking around, it, it is a a normal size attached garage that, yep, that is in every neighborhood garage. in America. Yeah. yeah, and there's tons of tools around. Let's just quickly go around. You've got a uh, you got a forge over here. Yeah. So if you're if you're standing outside looking in uh, to the left, I've got the forge, which is just an old converted two compartment barbecue pit, um, about 18, 19 inches of working space inside. 
to the right of it is my anvil, which is nothing fancy. It's just a 125-pound Carol Budden anvil. Um, not Carol Budden. Um, that's, I mixed two. <laughs> it's Hay Budden is one, and Carol, I can't remember, Clifton, something like that. If I could look on the other side, it'd tell me. Um, and it's, it's circled with different hammers and tongs that go along with it. How many times have you tried to drop that on the Roadrunner? <laughs> it's a little heavy for me. No. Okay, all right. <laughs> Probably for the Roadrunner, too. Um, and then progressing, moving further back in the shop, still on the left side, uh, brand new hydraulic press, 25-ton press uh, that I got from you know, being a part of the show and winning the show, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Uh, moving back, different shelving, that there's just storage compartments for all the different stool, uh, tool, uh, tools, steels, and, and stainless steels and carbon steels that I have. Um, chop saw, band saw, drill press, uh, a new Paragon 45-inch um, double barrel kiln. Got to give them a plug. They, they were incredibly generous and awesome people to work with. Uh, moving back all the way to the back wall, um, half of the back wall is just covered with belts for the belt grinder. Moving along the back wall, uh, brand new, um, uh, oh, I forgot what that machine's called. <laughs> Air compressor. Air compressor, Air compressor. Yes. man. With a large tank, probably a four or five foot tall tank, big uh, one. I, th I think it was an 80 gallon tank, if I remember correctly. Okay. Uh, the big thing with that, getting a little geeky with the tech specs and all that, it's, it's 20 CFMs, which uh, cubic feet from, per minute, um, that's how much air it can pump out consistently uh, at, at 90 PSI. A lot, a lot of people... You know, PSI is important, uh, but when you're doing the work that I'm doing where you want consistent airflow because of sandblasting or glass blasting, it's not necessarily how hard that air is coming out. It, it's how consistent and long-running you can get the same amount of pressure. Yeah, the so volume of it. Yeah, the volume. Good. That's that's why I went with 20 CFM, which I'm sure is overkill. But, you know, always be prepared, right? Be ready. Yep. Uh, and then just different sh shelving across the back, various, you know, what I would consider normal garage things, you know, spray paints, paint cans, and, you know, different saws and buckets for nuts and bolts. Um, then let's step back back out to the shop, and if we were looking to the right side of the shop, um, and it has my, my pressure pots. So to, to make handles, some certain handle materials, what are called hybrids, you take your woods, uh, put them under negative pressure with a stabilizing solution and dyes, and that impregnates the, the wood uh, to get your color pigmentation. Then you put it under positive pressure with a product called Alumalite, which is basically just acrylic, uh, and that fills in the voids in the woods and whatever shape of the mold that you're using. So these things look kind of like pressure cookers on steroids. That, that's exactly it, yeah. and, and it's nothing more than a vacuum uh, pump that you, know, you would see working on an AC unit in your car or your AC unit in your home. Um, it's, it's just a generic vacuum pump. Uh, next to that, I've got a uh, three cubic foot um, cement mixer. Kind of sticks out, looks weird. People always ask, why do you have that? So I do stone washing, stone washing of the knives to get different textures and finishes on the knives inside of that. Uh, then a dust collection bin, and then the, um, the uh, sandblasting cabinet that I use that uh, hooks up to the air compressor. And, and, and then a row of welders here and chop saws and, yeah. and more typical things you might see in a, in a garage. Yeah, the, the middle of it, I've got three different um, metal workbenches, uh, various sizes. Uh, they're all on casters, so I can move them around and, and get them out of the shop if I need more room. And, and they all have you know different, different things on top of them from, from belt grinder, 72-inch belt grinder, TW90, made by Travis Wirtz, uh, who's, who's an awesome guy. 
Um, quick story about him. When I wanted to buy the unit, left him a voicemail because I couldn't get a hold of him. And he called me back and we just chatted for about an hour and a half from his deer blind. He was hunting elk. <laughs> so, huh. wow. you know, just took so anybody that's going to take that time while they're hunting to talk on the phone because everybody that hunts knows you don't talk on a phone while you're hunting. That's yeah. going to scare everybody. But, you know, took the time to actually talk me through some stuff and just have a conversation, get to know me. I got to know him. So that, that kind of stuff definitely earned my business. Uh, another Paragon kiln, welders, miter saw, tabletop saw. So with all these tools you've got here, you've got, you've got uh, everything one could imagine that could fit inside of a household garage. Sure. Uh, and with all the knives and blades you make, is there any part of the process where you, you don't make, I mean, certainly you buy your raw materials, but do you even make your rivets? Do you make all the stuff that, I mean, do you buy, basically just buy raw materials and make everything? Yes. Uh, that's, that's what I am Pretty. I, I give me a second to think here, but I think I'm probably at either 95% or, or closer to doing everything in-house, or, or at least having the capabilities to do everything in-house. There are some things just because they're so time-consuming um, that I will outsource. Uh, I've got and and you know part of this is is wanting to support other people that are in the craft too. There are other guys that that only make handle materials. Terry Dunn. Okay. Terry Dunn is, in my opinion, the godfather of handle material. The guy knows exotic woods like you would not believe, and he knows how to create a phenomenal product better than anybody else that I've ever met. And he's a great guy, and he's a Texan. So there you go. Uh, done. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's we'll dig into the show here in just about a minute. But before we go, because I know we're going to get into some terms that some of our listeners may not know, um, talk about some of the terms of a knife, like the hilt, uh, the, the tang, the pommel, those kind of things. Just kind of do it like a, a, a talking uh, dictionary. Anatomy here. 101. Yeah. Um, I am the wrong person to get incredibly technical uh, about the, the, the finer things of knife making. Um, like I said, I'm still very new at it, so I'm still... I'm still learning all the because you know some of the some of the things have two different names. Um, so somebody will use it and I well what's that and they'll they'll say well this is that and they'll point to it. I'm like oh you mean it's this and it's the same thing. So like a hilt for instance is basically the handle portion of the knife, right? Correct. So you've got hilt and handle um, which are interchangeable. Yeah. Um, on certain knives you've got a pommel which generally those are going to be on either daggers or swords, not smaller knives. Although you can. Um, and that's going to be the very end butt piece that's generally only there for uh, counter counterweight. On some of the smaller knives, they put them on there just for ornamental because, you know, it's, it's, there's and, no and counterweight. It, and in some cases to help hold the, the handle material on, right? Correct. If you're, okay. if you're doing a, a loose fit and, and nothing is either glued or peened in, um, that pommel can be threaded. Um, and on, on my episode of Forge and Fire, actually, we had to do a threaded pommel, which was the very first time I had ever done a threaded pommel on national television. Uh, if you see me struggling with the tap and die, you, you get it. <laughs> so how about the tang? What is the tang then? Tang is also considered the handle. So that's um, the metal part that's under any, any handle material. Correct. It's, it's an extension of the blade metal, right? And there are different types of tangs that you can have. Um, I'll show you, but I'll describe in, in audio, <laughs> in voice. Um, you've got what's called a full tang, uh, or um, w which is the metal is the same shape and length as your handle material is going to be. Then you have what's called a hidden tang, uh, which is not visible, and your handle material is going to be completely encompassing, and that small piece of metal slides into the handle, and that's generally going to be held together with some type of uh, high epoxy or peened. 
through with a with a rivet as so, well. So in the example you're holding up, the blade is about 12 inches long, and the tang on that one is only maybe an inch and a half or so, two inches perhaps. Yeah. Okay, yeah. and then the one with the full tang has got uh, it's it's a blade of maybe four or five inches, and the handle is four or five inches. Tec technically, it's the blade's going to stop there, so you maybe you know blade's probably about three, three and a half, and then your handle uh, is you know four to four and a half of that. Yeah. Okay. So different types of tangs, and then different types of pommels. Okay. So let's let's get into it. Everyone uh, wants to hear about your experience on the History Channel episode called "The Partisan," and uh, it is forged in fire. Go, tell us about that experience. Yeah, so as I've previously said, I have not been doing this long at all. And I've got, you know, through the years, the two years, I've, I've met a lot of previous contestants and a couple of champions. And they all said, you know, we're very encouraging, just just try out. You know, you're, you're not going to make it if you don't try out. So I, I bit the bullet. I started hearing some rumors, whether they were true or not, that, you know, ratings were low and they may cancel the show. So I, I said, okay, let's, let's do it. So sent the email uh, and, and went through the interview process, which was fun and stressful. Um, emails back and forth, a couple of Skype interviews, and finally got the email saying, yeah, if you're available these dates, we'd like to fly you out. Uh, those dates were the week before Christmas of 2000. 17. So if you do the math, I had only been doing this seriously since February of that year. Okay. Uh, I did not have much uh, So, but with your background in audio and video production and, and that experience, surely, I mean, they're a television show, they're entertainment, right? So exactly. they're surely looking for a personality more so than a knife maker, right? Exactly. And I went above and beyond. I, I created my own little demo reel like you do when you're in college and sent them in, you know, different slideshows and me talking over and explaining everything in the shop. Um, and I, I hammed it up. I did. And through the interview process, when they're asking me questions, well, why do you think you're the next Forge and Fire uh, champion? I look dead in the camera. And this poor, the poor lady, whose name I forget, I, I, I kind of shocked her. Uh, I said, because I'm better than you in every possible way, and it's mine. <laughs> That's, that's good. And she said, well, no, no, not me. I'm not, not and, and after you get, you get the take, I explained to her, no, ma'am, I'm not talking about you. It's just everybody in general. I'm yeah. better than you because that's, you, you got to be cocky. So yeah, yeah. They're, they're looking for a personality that personality. sticks out. Yeah. 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 It's almost like the Survivor show. They don't get, they don't want the, the best player. They want the most exciting intelligent it's, person. They want ratings. Yeah. They don't want, you know, the best product ever made on the show. They want ratings. So it's worth noting now also that on the show, you very much look the part of a Viking with a big, long, scruffy beard. Yeah, yeah. And, and now you don't. You're, you've still got a beard, but it's much more trimmed and tamed. Yeah. Do you think that played in a factor in getting picked? That, um, that oh, sure, apart? sure. And that, you know, I, I just got done having shingles. So that's why I don't have a beard. I had to shave the beard to, to you know, do the medication and all that on the face for shingles. Um, which if you've had shingles, you understand how horrible that is. If you haven't, Pray you never get it. Um, so that, you know, beard will be back, ladies and gentlemen. Um, but yeah, it, it, the, the look for sure. And, you know, that, that is, you know, my ancestry is Scottish and Norwegian. So it is part of who I am. Um, I, I have no doubt that that played the part. So getting through, getting the plane situated, getting up there. Um, this is one of the things I'll, I'll get into quickly of, of my, my personal you know, struggle in life is I, I've struggled with PTSD and anxiety disorders um, since, since a child. And I hated flying and I hate being alone. So the whole point of me doing this was not to go on Forge and Fire to win. This was just for me to progress as a human being, getting out of my comfort zone and see what I'm capable of. Flying, which check mark, being in a hotel by myself, thousands of miles away from my family, 
difficult, but check mark. The Sunday night before we film, we filmed on Monday, uh, I'm in the hotel room on the verge of a panic attack on the phone with my wife saying, find me a red-eye flight. I'm coming home. I'm scheduling an Uber. I'm going to the airport right now. This is done. I can't do this. And she, in so many terms, just said, no, suck it up. You're going to do this. And if it wasn't for her having that faith in me of doing it, we would not have what we have now. Um, So getting there, meeting the people, uh, I could not have done this with with three other you know greater contestants who who are you know friends to this day. We still are in uh, communication. Fantastic people, meeting all the staff, meeting the judges. Uh, it, it was a really good experience, just overall. Um, I had a, a point where we were about to go you know first round because you know it's TV. You're you're you know cut action, cut action, cut action, reset, all this kind of stuff. Many many times over. Before we even started forging, it was probably a good five hours of, wow. of interviews and hitting your mark and understanding safety briefings, all this kind of stuff. Medic comes in and takes everybody's blood pressure and tries to clear you. And she, she looks at me after taking my blood pressure and she's, honey, you need to calm down. <laughs> I, said, I said, no, ma'am, it's, it's okay. I'm wired different. Trust me, as, as soon as the, the clock starts going, my, my blood pressure will level out. I'm, I'm backwards. It's just the way I am. Calm brings chaos and chaos brings calm in my life. So sure enough, as soon as, you know, as soon as Will says time starts now, I'm in the zone. I am in the zone. I, I love how they edited the show, making me look frantic and frazzled at points, but it wasn't the case. <laughs> I was in the zone and I loved it. You can find it on YouTube. You can go and watch the full episode on YouTube. Yep. Uh, and it is, uh, is kind of neat to see that. Uh, talk about, about the uh, show format. You'd mentioned you had some uh, fellow contestants with you, and there were three or four different rounds to get through throughout the show. Talk about that process of how those rounds worked and how it turned out for you and all of those. Yeah, so, so the judges give us a design that they want us to create, and they put certain parameters on it. Our particular case was a, I forget the length. I think it was between 12 and 15 inches. Uh, it had to have a recurved blade, and it had to have a through-threaded pommel. Um, I, recurved was no problem, but I knew that the, the threaded stuff was going to throw some issues at me later on. Um, so the first round is three hours. There are four of us, and they give us a, a round piece of uh, what they considered 10-series steel. They did not tell us what it was. Through spark testing, we kind of figured out it was probably 1095. And that wasn't enough, though. They did not give us enough to meet the parameters. So we had to source extra material from our forge. We had to cannibalize the forge. Uh, So, you know, if you watch the episode, you see all of us kind of turn around with this look on our face of, what? What are we doing here? Um, Because at that point, they had not told us that they were going to resupply a new forge. We were thinking, well, how are we going to source steel from this and still keep a functioning forge? to get the steel to the I, temperature. I like the way you handle that because all the other contestants were like, man, these forges are thick. They've got the insulating material inside. It's hard to cut them out. And you're like, I'll just take the legs. <laughs> well, that, the, the cool thing, it, it, they didn't edit it this way, but I'm, I'm at anvil number one. So when we turn, I can see the three other guys in front of me. And simultaneously, all four of our heads look down at the legs. They didn't edit it that oh, way. Oh, I see. Okay. But it's, you, you know, somebody right. was counting it off. One, two, three, look. And all of us looked at the exact same time. It was, it was uncanny. <laughs> uh, but they told us we could not use the legs. It had to come from the forge itself. Okay. So what I ended up doing was there were support brackets on the bottom of the forge. Okay, that's what I was calling the yeah. legs. So, okay, you, you, the, okay. The, the technical legs, it was on a stand, and it was you know, V-shaped angle iron. 
which would have been perfect because the other parameter was it had to be a San Mai technique. And San Mai basically just means three layers. So if you have that, that V angle iron, you put your 10 series in the middle of it and just smush it together like a taco. And okay. that would have worked perfect. And that's all of our brains are firing on that same cylinder. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, first round, three hours. And uh, judging time comes around. We, we all met parameters and we all had a good finished blade, not, not finished, but to the standard that they wanted at the time, except for Ethan, man, poor Ethan. In my opinion, Ethan, uh, Ian, sorry, Ian had the best looking blade, um, but he got a crack that ran literally the entire length from the tip down to the... And that's where the metal that he tried to taco together, right. like you said, didn't laminate properly, right? right? He, okay. The, the crack, the, it's called delamination because it, it didn't laminate. Um, so he was cut. And then, you know, through the through the process and wonders of TV, immediately we're back into, you know, round two. How, long, how much time was that in real time? That was the next day. The next day, okay. So the, our first day was a 16-hour day. We were back um, at the hotel room, if I remember right, about 1230 um, and th in the evening. And then we were back on set the next day at, at 730. Okay. So next day starts, you know, you're still doing your interview process, which was much faster than the first day. I think we were actually back in on set, ready to go by about 10 o'clock that next day. So um, it's it's not, you know, TV magic like everybody thinks. You know, if, if you're dirty when you leave the first day, they put makeup back on you to make you look the same. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. that's interesting. Um, it, funny little thing about season one, Rayu, uh, he, the first day was cutting up some G10, and G10 looks horrible and got it all over himself. And, you know, went to the hotel, took a shower, got cleaned up. And the next day, well, we can't do this because we ended you looking dirty. So they, they threw flour. They flour dirty, all yeah. over him. Wow, so that's, that's how amazing. he looks. You know, the second that's... round, he's in flour. He's not in G10 mess. <laughs> no, that's good. So you've got th three or four different rounds. Uh, and I remember, like you mentioned, uh, one of the guys got eliminated because his knife delaminated. Mm -hmm. uh, later, was it round two or three, another failure occurred that helped you move on? Right. Round two. Yeah. Everything finished product, we've got our handles on, uh, threaded pommels, and functional blade ready to go. Our chop test was a fire brick test, and I went first, and I paid attention. I listened that they told us ahead of time, your tests are going to be a chop brick, a, a, a chopping brick slice, brick chop. And, and this is exactly test. what it sounds like. This guy takes, big strong guy takes yeah. 10, 10 hard wax at a, at a concrete block with these things, right? So the, the brick that's on top of my forge and the bricks that are inside my forge, it was those exact same bricks yeah. layered together. Um, and they're not the strongest bricks, but they are, they're pretty dense. And it's a hard swing at those things. And I listened and I made the edge geometry specifically for that. And that's okay. why mine just destroyed that brick. Okay. Um, Matt's, however, did not. Again, phenomenal blade, looked awesome. But his edge geometry, in my opinion, was just a little too sharp. It was too fine. Um, but he also had, in my opinion, a freak accident where his, he had a slight bend. And in order to correct that bend, he grind or ground one side too thin. So now he, in, in certain points, he didn't have three layers. He only had two. Oh, I see. He didn't okay. have his mild steel, his hardenable steel, and his mild steel he only had his hardenable steel and his mild steel. Okay. So when it hit it a certain way, the hard steel cracked, but the mild steel held it all together. But he had a horrible bend and chipping in the, in the, uh, uh, on the edge. 
And then John, John, his performed performed fantastically, and he went all the way through. So, so with a, a bit of maybe bad luck by your fellow contestants and some good fortune on your end, you oh, were yeah. able to get into the finals. Oh yeah. Okay. As, as then, soon as his cracked, and I saw that bend, I'm thinking in my head, whoa. So then the finals are different because yes. I it's back here at your house. Tell talk about the how how long it took to come back here and reset up at your shop and make that final round. Yeah. So, um, the, we got done filming in. Uh, just outside of New York, uh, three days before Christmas, if I remember correctly. And then the film crew was at my house uh, January 3rd. And from the 3rd, you know, five days after that, because um, you get, you get, for our situation, it was a little different because we only got 35 hours instead of 45 hours, which is normal. So the first day was only five hours and then three consecutive days of 10 hours of working. Um, and it was a fantastic experience. Uh, the, my, my camera guy, Mike, awesome guy. Uh, it, it was interesting that he, this was the first time that he had worked for Forge and Fire. He was filling in for a guy uh, who, couldn't, who couldn't make the trip. And he had done other TV shows like The Amazing Grace and some Desperate Housewife stuff as a film guy, camera guy. So this was his first experience doing that. So he was, he was on point as far as trying to get me to follow the rules and not deviating and, and staying on top of things. And he was very inquisitive, asking the process because he didn't know anything. So that was great. It was. So it was, did they have, uh, how many were in the crew? They had producers just here two. probably? Oh, the camera. Just which one, one camera guy who also doubled as the producer. Okay. And then one uh, tech media person. So when camera guy was done or, you know, his, his card stick was full of, of uh, memory, just gives it to the data collector i guess and and archives it puts it in the drives uploads it you know so it's all you know redundantly saved in case something happens um but yeah that they were just in two separate uh two separate rooms one person take care of all of that and then the camera guy was just shadowing me everywhere okay and so ultimately you made a, a, a blade that won the show yeah uh a partisan spear uh was very difficult to do very difficult that was outside of my comfort zone which what this whole process was all about, getting outside of my comfort zone, which I loved. Then we get back to, uh, to the studio to test, and uh, I'm, I'm looking at John's, and I'm just thinking, man, it's beautiful. That thing's just going to tear mine apart. It was, it was more sleek. The edges were sharper. It just, it just looked the way it was supposed to. I took a little more of a fantasy route and overbuilt and just wanted to do something more aesthetically awesome than possibly functional because, um, again, out of my comfort zone. The first test uh, was the ballistics dummy test, and both of ours, man, we destroyed those things. Blood was flying everywhere. That's actually a somewhat of an intimidating scene to watch when they're oh, doing yeah. that because it's it is. I mean, you're it's a it's a ballistics dummy like you'd see on MythBusters or something, but they're destroying the, the, it's 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 somehow it's gruesome. Yeah, it, it's it, gruesome. it looks like murder, right? Yeah, <laughs> it and, is a really weird I, thing. I to love see. Doug Markaida, and anybody that knows him and has seen this happen, man, he loves what he does. Oh, I bet. So you know when he's done testing. Testing these things, the smile on his face, and you can you can see the adrenaline in his hands because he just had some fun. Uh, Doug's a little sick person sometimes, and it's it's it makes for good TV. Uh, so that's that's what it was. You know, blood was flying everywhere, and he's chuckling. His hands are shaking with adrenaline. It was it was and and fantastic. he goes he's a strong guy, and he he goes yes. after it. Uh, yes, he does. It's, uh, it's really kind of weird to see that scene, uh, and every show's got it. I mean, every 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 yeah. episode's got that. So, some more than others because. You know, the nature of a partisan going through a person's body is a little different than, you know, a thin sword. 
uh, you know, the shoulder chopped off on mine and ribs were flying out of John's. It was, it was gruesome. So ultimately you, you won, you, uh, they, they tell on the show that you won $10,000 on that and, and you took some of that money to come back and help build your shop here, right? Yes. All of that money came back to the shop. Um, I have been incredibly fortunate and blessed to be able to meet some fantastic people throughout the industry. Um, all of which are who are owners of companies of the, the products that I've bought Paragon, uh, kilns and uh, Riverside or Uncle Al's presses. Um, they they have been awesome to me as far as me wanting to them them wanting me to use their products and me wanting to use their products and then working out deals to where I, I could get as much as I've got because ten thousand dollars after taxes and after yeah. you know my setting aside for you know giving to church and stuff like that it it's dwindles away pretty fast. <laughs> and do you have any expenses in traveling there? Or do they handle all, all of that? No, they handle they handle okay. everything as far as uh, travel, putting you up, and food. Um, okay. We, you know, per diem type stuff per day, anything over that we've got to cover. So as far as that was concerned, it was, you know, paid vacation. Got to go into New York and see some sites in New York, but that was on our dime, um, which wasn't wasn't bad at all, surprisingly. So that's definitely good. Is it, uh, so you, you've won a pile of money, you come back here, you get, you get to build your business. Has that actually... I guess the reputation or the resume fillerness of winning that show has that also translated into increased sales and increased awareness about your business? A, a little bit, yes. The traffic to the website has gone up, um, social media interactions have gone up, business has gone up just a little bit, not as much as I'd like. So you know, <laughs> keep it coming. Uh, but I, I think the big test of it is is all of the holiday shows that are about to come up. Yeah. Uh, that's that's. Towards the end of the year is is the big time for me. So let's back it up here for the audience. The the way I met you was actually uh, several months ago back at Comic Palooza in Houston here when I was setting up with uh, Pazometry, the sponsor of the show. I uh, had a booth there with Pazometry, and uh, you were a booth, uh, I don't know, 100 feet down the hallway. And, and uh, yeah, so we saw you there. So so those kind of shows, how many of those do you do per year? Oh, man. Uh, 20? Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, um, and, and the bulk of those are towards the end of the year. Um, October, a- November, and December, three weekends out of each of those months. You know, there's there's you know nine shows right there. Where does Comic Palooza rank in the success of those? Do you do you really like that one, or is that kind of middle of the pack? That one's kind of it's it's kind of in the middle of the pack, but it's more of a you know a geek out fan fest for me too. because yeah, it it's such you know, a fun event. Going yeah. to you know Michael Dorn and um, Gates McFadden. You, who, if, if you know or don't know, you know, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Worf, and, and Beverly Crusher, Dr. Beverly Crusher, you know, those, I, I'm a Star Trek geek, so being in that atmosphere is, is fun, and I like making more of the personal enjoyment of making fantasy-type weapons versus functional what sells, yeah, so I, I love type, that show. The fantasy weapons there at Comic Blues, I mean, it, it, the name implies it's a comic Best, but it's it's truly more than that. It's it's there's tons yeah. of all kinds of sci-fi geekdom going on. It's really an amazing show. Let's break out of the program here for a few seconds to give a shout out to our sponsor, Puzzometry, the hardest puzzle you'll never solve. If you love working on challenging, unique, and beautiful mechanical puzzles, then you've just got to try Puzzometry. P-U-Z-Z-O-M-E-T-R-Y, Pazometry.com. They have three different puzzles to choose from, and all are for sale at Pazometry.com. Check it out. You'll be glad that you did. Pazometry can also be found on Twitter and Facebook. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Lumenovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation. 
Before we get back to the program, I want to let you know that you can find all of the episodes of the Luminovation podcast on our webpage, luminovation.com. That's L-U-M innovation.com, luminovation.com. We are also on iTunes as well as soundcloud.com. All right, let's get into the into the knife. So, make it a uh, kind of a really quick rundown of the process, and then as as we get through it, we'll dig into the details of each step. You start with your raw material, and you either forge it, which is hammer, anvil, repeating fire, uh, or you stock remove, and you get your basic shape from there. Your, your silhouette. Um, then you're going to bevel. Uh, cut in your bevels, whether you're forging those bevels or you're grinding those bevels, which is basically just the the edge geometry, the initial edge geometry of that blade. Um, then you heat treat. You get it really, really hot. You quench it. You temper it because quenching will make it very brittle, and you got to bring it back down a little bit so it's you know somewhat malleable. You still want it to you know have edge retention. Uh, then you clean it up, getting it ready for a handle. You're either going to drill your pin, drill your holes for handle pins or you're going to get it ready for doing, you know, a hidden tang or a through tang. Uh, Attaching those handle materials, um, shaping those handle materials, then, you know, sanding it to its final polish. Uh, And then my last step that I do is is, uh, putting the final edge on it because, you know, safety first. You don't want to have a completely sharp knife while you're still handling it on, you know, all of your equipment getting the, the, the handle shape or the finish, you know, you can, you can very easily cut your hand doing that kind of stuff. And then just polishing it all up again, just to be safe. Uh, everything looks all nice and got, has a good luster and then it's ready to go. What I like about doing these shows in the, the home base of the creator is, uh, well, like a, a couple shows ago, we were at Marchione Guitars in downtown Houston and sitting around their shop was just, uh, I, I said on the show, a, a bunch of cadavers of guitars because yeah. there was necks and there was bodies and there was string, just parts of guitars laying all around. And you have a smaller version of that here on your table. You've got tons of different knives in various states of of manufacture. Yeah. Uh, just kind of go around and talk about where some of these are in the uh, process. None of them are done, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> which is but, causing me stress. <laughs> but there's probably, I don't know, what, 30 <laughs> knives here in various various states? Oh, uh, yeah, roughly, roughly. Uh, I've got anything from, from just small little skinning knives to, you know, 32-inch cutlass swords um, and everything in between. There's, there's kitchen sets, there's daggers, there's fighters, there's bushcrafting knives. Uh, I've got two that are in various stages of completion of, of the forging process. I'm, I'm making a katana and a wakasashi uh, combo, which katana is the large one that everybody knows from you know Japanese folklore. Uh, wakasashi is the exact same thing. It's the same edge geometry, same overall geometry, same look. It's just shorter, um, different purpose. And you know, most of these are probably about halfway done. Um, some of them have the handle materials all ready to go with them. One thing that when I first walked in here and saw these, one thing that kind of caught my eye is that you've got, uh, I don't know, seven or eight things here that are, that are absolutely knife-shaped. You recognize them as knives, but they have no edge on them, and they are yep. just purely a quarter-inch thick steel. Yeah. And it's kind of weird to see a knife that has absolutely no edge on it, and it's, it's just not even done yet. It's just, just not, not even close. consistently That's... thick metal of, of a knife shape and nothing more. It is, it is just your silhouette. It, yeah. And what in in the knife making industry is called a blank. It's your blade blank. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely good. And you've got a few others that already have the handles on them. That are what, what is that material on the handle? The the pink. Well, talk about that one too. And we'll, um, then we'll th- move these on are all ones. woods. These are all different various woods. Um, this one's not complete. 
It's okay. it still needs some some work in assembly. What kind of wood is that? Uh, this one, if I remember correctly, is um, maple burl. I was going to guess burled maple. Yeah, that's, that's uh, if I remember right. I got it written down. I'm horrible with a memory. Um, this is box elder burl, um, which is is my personal favorite. You you get some really cool um, luster and textured effects, even though it's completely smooth. It looks textured. Uh, and then these, I can't remember. I think oak. Oak burl, but these are these are what is called a hybrid. Uh, I was describing that earlier, where you you have your wood which is dyed and stabilized, then you put it in a mold, and the voids are filled with acrylic. And this particular one, it's it's red, um, different shades of red, kind of going into some pink a little bit. Um, but the and that's the wood. The wood is dyed and stabilized that color, and then the acrylic is a black and lustrous silver, glittery kind of white color. Um, and that makes your your handle, um, which on these, you know, the, the Hidden Tang uh, kitchen set is what those are. And you've also done some work with Ebony, right? Um, there There is a product that's called Micarta, and you can get those in different colors, um, one being Ebony, which... When you when you do that right, it looks just like ivory. Feels just like ivory. But obviously, you can't use ivory over here because of you know legal situations and trade embargoes. And People all that. don't like dead elephants, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's just micarta. Okay, very cool. That's that's definitely neat. It's really kind of neat to see knives in various states of uh, coming alive. And you've got some uh, bracelets there as well. Or are those part of the the handles? Uh, these are forged bracelets. Okay. Um, just basic, your basic mild steels, uh, and forge them to size, get them textured, uh, and yeah, just basic basic forge bracelets. We've got an unexpected guest here on the show. We've got a dog that walked the, up to this, us. Yeah, this neverhood your, is, dog. This is not my dog. It's not your dog. Okay, um, nice, nice uh, we, dog. Welcome to the podcast. And <laughs> don't know where he's from, uh, but very well behaved dog, and he's always here. Uh, my apprentice is here you know, Monday through Wednesday. And we're always working, and the fan's always going, and it gets hot. Yeah. So he, he comes and visits and sits in front of the fan. And good plan. it's kind of a daily thing. So whoever, whoever's in charge of him is not taking very good care to make sure the fence is taken care of. One thing that, that occurred to me is with you being on the History Channel, and uh, History Channel, of course, is there to try to celebrate in, uh, history. Um, how often do you get asked to make recreations of historic weapons? Is, is that a th- thing that you... Not very often. Okay. <laughs> um, I think in my entire experience, the one true recreation that I've done is is the cutlass. Um, and I guess, I guess you could say the katana, but that's that's more of my own. I want to do that, uh, not a customer wanting something like that done. Um, so yeah, with with the exception of the cutlass, never. <laughs> I see. So there, there's another group that I did a show with. Uh, they're called the Society for Creative Anachronisms, and they're task, their job, their hobby is to go and go back and totally nerd out on researching um, how folks lived 500 or 1,000 years ago mm-hmm. and recreate the, the tools and the, the parts of their day-to-day life. And I wondered if you have any relationship with those guys because your craft here would fit in perfect with what they're trying to do. I have never heard of them. And uh, now that I have, it sounds like something I'd be interested in because I, 
have a love for bushcrafting and just survival. So that would be okay. a very interesting thing to, to get in contact well, with. Well, let me, let me plug this podcast I've heard of called the Luminovation Podcast. <laughs> go back go. <laughs> go back and listen to the SCA episode. Uh, yeah, they, they would uh, they would probably totally geek out and come up here and, yeah. and learn all kinds of stuff from you. It'd be great. Very cool. Uh, that would definitely be good. Talk about uh, when you got started. Did you have a mentor or anything that, that kind of helped you get started, or you were just uh, one of those YouTube guys? That YouTube. Just like, okay. Yeah. Um, I technically still to this day have never, you know, really had a mentor. Um, I, I say that technically I have someone that I look up to and esteem very highly in the industry, and I've, I've learned a lot from him, but it, it's not through a, a real mentorship-type program. I see. His name is Niels Vandenberg. He's from South Africa, and in my opinion, one of the best knife makers in the industry. Um, I have, I've learned a lot from him. We have cultivated a friendship uh, over the Internet, and uh, he's come to Blade Show in Atlanta a couple of times, and we've gotten to meet and hang out there um, this, this past year at pretty much every single night after the show. Um, f- fantastic guy. I mean, th- there's something to be said about South African people, man. They're they are very hospitable, very kind, very sharing of the knowledge that they have. And he, he's definitely you know, prince among that type of mentality. That's, that's, that's good to have those people in, in the industry that, that surely you can teach them a little bit and you can learn from them. So it's, yeah. it's definitely good to, to but, have that. But other than him, industry. YouTube. <laughs> I understand. Yeah, YouTube is becoming such a good resource. How often do you get partway through a blade? Like like I say, we've got maybe 30 or so knives or knife-like things here. Uh, how often do you get through a blade and you realize, oh man, this is completely beyond beyond repair and I just have to scrap it and move on? Is it Does that happen often? Rare. Um because even <clears throat> depending on where certain cracks take place on a blade, it can be repairable. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very upfront if it happens on a knife with somebody, because um, there there are certain cracks that can happen happen in the in the handle or in the back of the blade where you can weld that. You know, you you weld it, you fill that void, you fill that crack with weld, you sand it back down, and it's good, clean, you know, solid, um, flat surface, so it's not going to hurt anything. Um, but if you get it in the blade, yeah, that's that's pretty much a, a done deal. Because if you, especially on a bushcrafting blade, if you go to whack a tree and there's already a crack there, that, that knife's not going to last very long. Um, if you guys weren't uh, weren't in the time constraints of the TV show, some of your contestants that had failures, would those be something you could repair in the shop if you had more time, or are those kind of doomed regardless? I Because of how drastic they were, I don't know. I mean, Ian's, you could throw a bead of weld all the way down the spine of that. Uh, but because of how big it was, I don't think you could effectively clear that up. Uh, and, and Matt's situation, no, because because he does he he instead of having that Samai with the three layers, he was only down to two. Um, and the big chip that he got in the uh, the 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 edge of the blade itself is was beyond repair. I see. Uh, I happened to bring in a thing here t- uh, before yep. the show started, and it is uh, w- the oldest thing I own. It is uh, 1860s-ish um, Civil War sword that I that I think is from uh, the, the story I've heard is it's from some of my ancestors. Uh, you being a blade maker, is there something you can look at that and say, "Oh, that's cool. That's neat that they made them that way back then." Is is do you kind of geek out on it that way? Well, uh, sure. Um, but with my love of Civil War history, and as a child, we went to a lot of Civil War museums and, and battlefields. I'm not seeing anything that's popping out at me as like, oh, wow, I've never seen that before. Because I've, I've seen, seen hundreds of these. Yeah, okay. um, but growing up as a kid, I, I was always fascinated with the, the handguards, how, yeah. how they were able to get 
you know, this, this is a very simple shape, but I'm going to the Metropolitan Museum when I was in uh, New York, seeing some of the very ornate designs that they're able to do in these guards is fascinating especially when you look at the timestamp of when they were made. Yeah, that's that's probably relatively easy to make now, but 150 years ago, that was several days of work just to make the handguard, I'm sure. I, I couldn't tell you specifically, but you're probably right. Um, but even, even looking at the more ornate ones that are all made out of gold that have very, very fine hand detail of, of picturesque scenes of things that were going yeah. on in, you know, wherever they were made, the, the ornate stuff, especially some of the stuff made in France, Wow. Yeah. It's it's mind blowing how you know with all the technology that we have now, and we still think something like that's difficult. And to to look two three hundred years ago and to see something that's even better than what we're capable of doing now and understanding it was all done by hand. That it's mind blowing. One thing that kind of caught my attention on this one, uh, I have I've known what this looked looked like ever since I've had it, but it but it just in the last few days of of researching for the show, where the pommel is one piece with the handguard, yeah. and it kind of wraps around the the hilt. Yeah. Uh, is that a, a typical or unusual or? I know it, it typical. Um, different ways of doing things. Different different smiths because they didn't have the internet back then. They weren't able they to look at, at you know peers and say, well, this is how my peer is doing it. I'll do it that way because that's so much easier. They you know they had to think through it right then and there. Um, looking at this one, this one was probably made where this connecting point from the guard to the pommel was straight and everything was assembled. And because this is brass, brass is very malleable. Just a little bit of heat right there and then it was bent in place to go on top. Oh, I see. So, uh, okay, so it's hard to really describe this. Or inside right there is what I mean. And then the the pommel would have capped on to enclose all of that in. And what do you think the the hilt is made of there? It looks like leather, leather, but... uh, Okay. It's, it's it's leather leather when it ages and and is is you know exposed to elements and stuff like that it kind of gets that glossed over hard um, cracked look to it very good how do you balance um, how do you balance function versus uh, artistic and aesthetic look of, of a knife because you're you're nice if they're ugly they're not going to sell they've got to be beautiful they've got to be functional how do you balance that I'm I'm a little different I don't okay. <laughs> um, I I do one of two things. I either make a product that I know is going to sell, and that's the one that I mass produce because that's my production line. That's how I feed the family. Yep. Um, or I just make what I, whatever I want to make, and if 99 out of 100 people don't like it, I don't care because it's made for that one out of 100 that finds something that they personally like in it. I mean, that's, that's kind of the whole idea between, between or, or in artistry, in any field, really, you know, you look at a Picasso painting and a lot of people, I don't get it. I don't like it. I'm one of those people. There are a lot of paintings that my wife loves. I just don't get yeah. how, how are you spending a hundred thousand to a million dollars on a painting? I don't get it, but there's that one person that does. And that's kind of some that's... of the knives and, and blades that I make or, or fall into that category of this is just the mood. It, it purely, it's, it's an artistry thing. This is okay. the mood that I'm in. This is how I want to do it. I don't, care if I'm not supposed to do it that way. At the end of the time, I have a product and I know I'll probably sit on it for a couple of years before somebody says, hey, I like that. Yeah, and I'm okay with that. And that's a magic moment when you see that in a customer. Yeah. Yep. yep. Absolutely. Are there any of them where you maybe go to the opposite end of the spectrum where it's like, okay, this will actually make a maybe a crappy functional knife, but man, it looks beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to say which one it is. This one. <laughs> this one. <laughs> um, no, I don't, I don't mind. The story behind this is kind of funny. 
Uh, this, He's holding up one of the uh, 30 knife cadavers from yeah, the table here. This is, uh, for, for those in Texas, I think they're all over Texas, Longhorn Steakhouse. Uh, if you go there and you order a steak and they give you a steak knife, you're going to get the design that I'm holding in my hand. Now, it's been slightly changed per the customer that wanted it. Um, but the, the, the weight and the balance and the size of the handle as compared to the size of the blade, I don't get it. It doesn't fit any normal human hand. It um, looks more like a honey knife instead of a steak knife. It looks it, big. It, yeah, it does. Um, but the, the size of that handle, you know, I've got an extra inch right oh, there when I'm, when I'm holding it. Yeah. And, and the blade, you know, I've, I've had to elongate it just a little bit to get it somewhat appealing. But that, that knife is probably, what, 13, or 14, 13 to 14 inches long? It's probably about more than 10, a foot. About 10. Oh, Really, the whole piece of metal is more than the, 10? The whole thing is right, about 10. 10. Okay. Because these big ones right here are 13 to 14. Okay. So it's, you know, 10, 10 to 11. Um, and of that 10 to 11, uh, I, would, I would say originally seven inches of that was handle. Wow. And I've, I've had to elongate to get it a little bit more proportional because that, if you can see, that'd it be about right there. It looks severely yeah. out of proportion if yeah, you did. Already, that. the way it yeah. is. Just, it's, to, just yeah. visually, yeah. So other than this one... Not, not really. I try and do everything is is aesthetically appealing and functional, you know, combination as possible. How long does it take start to finish generally? And I realize you got several product projects going on simultaneously, so it's yeah. probably an unfair question. But if you had to say, no, I've, I've done the math. Okay, so so start to finish. If I come in and order, I want so and so knife. How long is it? What's the lead yes. time on that? So originally, I'll start with my best seller. Uh, my best seller is the SPT Spearpoint Tactical Eight. And with all of my original equipment, when I first started, this would take me 37 hours, start to finish. Wow, that's amazing. I have gotten it down to five and a half. Hey, that's, that's even more amazing. Yeah. So that, that, is that one is... That is the hobby into a business. Yeah, it's, there you go. Efficiency. Yeah. Um, now, my bigger, that's a very small knife, um, eight inches overall. It's, it's a, a thin neck knife or off-the-belt um, self-defense style knife. And it's, it's only eight inches, and it's eight-inch steel it's not too thick um this one be ready bowie quarter inch thick 14 inches overall when i first started doing this one uh it was 40 hours okay and i've gotten this one down to seven and a half wow that's great so big big difference totally good what are the, some of the different materials you use? Certainly for the blades you use in various types of steel, but what about the hilt where there's a lot more creativity on the different types of materials? What are some of the different types? You you talked about some of the woods, but is there any, do you use leather, do you use plastic, sure. maybe uh, some of the other unusual materials, wire yeah. wrapping? Yeah. Um, so yeah, the, the steels are all, you know, good quality knife steels. I'm, I'm not going to use anything mild steel that's going to, you know, not have edge retention, not be durable. Um, I, I want a quality product. So anything that's considered a good knife steel is what I'm going to use. Now, as far as the ornamental things, the, the, the guards, the pommels, the hilts, the handles, uh, I'll go crazy. I, I've used anything from just simple mesquite wood to uh, when, when my daughter was young, um, we would get her the, the little baby food pouches. And the lids of those were pl different colored plastic screw-on lids. Okay. Well, you know, we're going through tons of those things per month, right? So we got these stupid little lids all over the place. What I'm do I do? I use them. Yeah. I melt them down. Okay. And I made a brick of this melted plastic material, and I've used that to make handles. Nice. It's just, just plastic 
you know, they're, you know, psychedelic, you know, multicolor melting together, twisting the but melting thing. But in the right thing. market, that multicolor weird rainbow right. looking thing is going to work. Right. So I've, I've gone that crazy with it. Uh, not that's, too much. That's very good. Uh, but there's, there's all kinds of different materials that are made by manufacturers that kind of already have some, I don't want to say crazy, but some kind of interesting aesthetic appeal. What we're seeing here is an orange looking thing with some black uh, random, not quite stripes, but just random lines through it. Uh, I don't, what is that material? Uh, it, this is a product called Kiranite, which basically okay. is is a uh, either a plastic or an acrylic type uh, material, and it's you know bright bright orange, uh, be, a, a hunting knife or, or a skinning knife. So you know hunters want orange because they can see it if it falls on the ground, that kind of thing. Um, but it, it is it's just another type of plastic. Okay. So, so way back when we met, it was that in April or May? I forget which <sighs> month it was at Comic Blusa, but. Uh, one of our mutual acquaintance, acquaintances here, Adolfo, bought a knife from you, and uh, he got it in the mail a week or two later, and, and I reached out to him in the last few days and said, hey, give me some questions of, now that you have one of his knives, and you know I'm going to come talk to him. Give me some questions. So he threw out a couple of questions here. Uh, what is the hardest metal to work with? What is... Oh, man. Um, if you're working with a 25-ton press, nothing. If you're working with your shoulder on an anvil... Um, I'm, I'm not too fond of leaf spring, leaf spring. Um, I, noticed, I noticed you've got one of those over there. I, I've got a couple and yeah. you, you might see two of them that are attached to some rebar. Like I've been working with them and threw them to the side because I was mad because the metal wasn't moving. And that would be a true sentence. <laughs> the, it's, it's just, and that's, um, that's almost half inch thick. So I'm, I'm being stupid trying to play with half inch thick steel, but that, that stuff's hard to move. It's very hard to move. Okay, and then the other one is, uh, his, his question right right out of the text message was, how do you make that cool swirly line on the knife? The cool swirly line. I'm assuming he's going to mean... He had Damascus steel, right? That kind of texture. No. Okay, well, maybe, maybe that's what he had. I'm not sure. So there's, he may be, he may be meaning Damascus. Uh, and I'll, I'll go Damascus because everybody likes Damascus. So Damascus is a combination of different types of steels. Uh, uh, generally, uh, a high carbon steel... 1095, 1084, somewhere in there. And then a higher nickel steel, your 15 in 20. Um, and you, you cut strips of that, you alternate the layers, you weld them together so it stays together when you put it in the forge, bring it up to temperature, and then you are doing a process called forge welding where you're, both of those metals are, are hot enough to where they will blend together. And you can contort it all kinds of different ways uh, once it gets to its temperature just by smushing and folding and smushing and folding or elongating and twisting and then folding, um, cutting different uh, chunks of it and putting them in different mosaic patterns and then so, smushing them So is that different again. types of metal that you're folding or is it the same type of metal just folded over and over again? It's just those same okay. two, the, the, the high carbon and your high nickel okay. that are just folded over and over again. And then the, the different textures and colors as it gets heated and cooled, those and folded, all those different colors form the stripes and, it's, and patterns it's that we see. Not yet. It's, it's, there's, it has nothing to do with the heat of it. Um, okay. it's, it's all how you contort the shape of it because you're mixing together those two different steels now if you if you once at that point you take it out and you clean it up on the grinder and you get it totally polished up it's going to look like one color it's all nice silver okay you dip it and soak it in acid acid bath um yeah. different people do different types of acid ferrochloric hydrochloric some people use mustard some people use coffee Anything that is a caustic that's going to eat away that high carbon steel. And the, the dark parts of that blade are that high carbon and how it's reacted to 
uh, whatever your acoustic acid is and, and what's shiny, that's the 15 and 20, your high nickel steel, because it takes longer to eat that away than it does the high carbon. Yeah, if, if you've not seen a Damascus steel anything, I mean, knives are one thing. Google but it. Yeah, the, it's really a unique look. It, yeah. it almost doesn't, I mean, it certainly looks like metal, but it doesn't look like any kind of metal you've ever seen before. It's just mm -hmm. a, such a really neat artistic look on it. It, it almost looks like it's, an artist just individually drew each line, which is entirely not practical. Not <laughs> and there, there no, there are some cases where people do think things through at such a crazy level. Where I've seen people make belt buckles that are um, the 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 Texas flag, the American flag, the the Union Jack flag oh, from from the, England. The folds make where, the stripes and such. But no, they get so technical to where the stars are actually stars, wow. and all of this is hand forged. Like how how do you get? such a small detailed That's star amazing. out of hand forging something like that wow. blows my mind. Yeah. We're getting uh, toward the end of the show here. Give a shout out to your website, your social medias. Yeah. How, do, how do people get a hold of you? How do they buy knives? Yeah, brbwtx.com is the website. Uh, also on Instagram, at bereadybladeworks. Um, Facebook also, facebook.com slash uh, be Ready Blade Works, or you can just simply Google Be Ready Blade Works and find all kinds of stuff on me there. A uh, bunch of different interviews of different radio programs around the area that popped up, which I just Googled myself the other day, and that was kind of cool to see. <laughs> <laughs> be Ready Blade Works from uh, Philip Shry here in Spring, Texas. Yeah. Anything else to wrap up with? I Thank you. Th this has been a blast. I, I appreciate it. Uh, look forward to doing it again in the future, maybe. Very good. Thanks, Philip. And thanks, uh, listeners, for tuning in to the Luminovation Lumin Podcast. I think I should know the name of this thing. <laughs> thanks. I'm Jim Fox, and thank you for listening to the Luminovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live. <laughs>